Hi everyone, welcome to the Disciples of Euchre podcast, episode 37. My name is Vineet Barot, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Zatel. Nicholas, how are you? I'm doing well, Vineet. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, before we get started, I just want to tell everybody how to uh, follow us. Obviously, you can go on Twitter and follow us at Disciples Euchre, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at vbarot87. And Nicholas, how do they get in touch with you? Um, the best way to get in touch with me is um, we do baseball baseball tweets at um, Disciples Euchre on Twitter. That should be at Disciples Euchre, just like the site. And um, we also have a new email for the site that is doubrewers at gmail.com. There you go. Perfect. So they can send in, people can send in their questions, comments, whatever. And, Definitely. Uh, talk about how much your writing sucks or my writing, my <laughs> podcasting sucks, all on that same email. Oh, I, I, I can just can just imagine that. Um, I'm actually looking. Uh, there should be a contact page on the site too, if there's ever any uh, ever any doubt. Um, just go on the 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 top of the page and in fact i should use this opportunity to say we have a new um we're updating the prospects um top prospects page all the time so um we have uh disciples has all sorts of prospect stuff from the last year all in one convenient location so if you go to the the disciples of euchre homepage, there's the top 30 prospects and uh you're just going to find a ton of links there so you can you can get all your prospect information in one one easy to find place. Excellent. No, that's that sounds great, and that's sort of what um, I think Brewers fans' focus will be in the upcoming year, two years, three years, whatever it is, however long the rebuild lasts. And I don't think we've talked about the new GM quite on on the podcast. I know you, we've talked a lot about it on the website, but you know, it's we're kind of seeing what David Stearns is doing. It only in terms of. Um, and this is going to sound like a criticism, but it's not. And if only in terms of, I'm not quite sure what he's doing sometimes, you know, with the trades that he makes. You know, you, um, we'll, I know we'll talk about these trades in a little more detail, but, um, you know, flipping K-Rod for an infielder and then flipping another in- infielder for an outfielder. And then you're like, and you know, flipping a, a Seisnead who's basically a prospect giving away a prospect mm-hmm. for a more major league ready player when a team is rebuilding so it, it again I, i'm not qualifying whether that's good or not yet it's just it kind of tells you a little bit about him and it sort of even makes sense from a point of view of him coming from the astros organization i absolutely agree with that and in fact I think um, what we're seeing right now, I would just call this house cleaning. This isn't even, mm. uh, I, I, to be perfectly honest, wouldn't even judge a general manager on this type of move because uh, it seems pretty clear to me that he's just setting up his his organization in a certain way. Um, so, for instance, um, I think the size need thing is extremely interesting because maybe he just views depth rotational arms in a different way um, than Doug Melvin's uh, farm guys did. So maybe he's saying, well, we have all this right-handed depth, but 
you know, we don't necessarily have an elite uh, right-hander close to the majors yet, maybe, uh, except for maybe Jorge Lopez, depending on how you feel about him. But so maybe he's saying, let's let's trade some of this depth for some potential upside elsewhere. And that's just maybe a completely different type of attitude that he might have. So um, it's going to be impossible to judge that until he really goes into some other transaction so i think this is uh we we might just call this house cleaning for now yeah sure i mean i yeah that that's a fair point it's kind of like moving around furniture when uh, the wrecking crew is coming later um <laughs> <laughs> but but i mean i think the care deal is a little bit more i mean it's it's minor relatively minor but it is a more straightforward uh team that's rebuilding gets rid of closer acquires a future asset that's the truth i that's i mean um, it's interesting to see which segments of the fan base are for or against the trade or uh, trying to judge the return. But uh, as far as a salary dump goes um, for a rebuilding team, I think getting all of that contract off of the books is just, that's, that's an excellent thing to do. Um, there's just no need when the Brewers have basically been running at at their payroll capacity for probably close to a decade now, you know, ease that up a little bit and, uh, uh, you know, let those youngsters and let that organizational pitching depth come into that bullpen. So uh, give everyone their shot or maybe give some veterans a chance to do a comeback scene. But, uh, and let's be honest, Francisco Rodriguez is a great closer. He's one of my favorite pitchers to watch. Uh, It's just, you have to ask whether or not the Brewers need him for, 2016 yeah yeah totally agree um let me just let's see if we can set the table a little bit for people who maybe haven't been paying too much attention um in terms of <laughs> not just what the yeah not just what the brewers Tuning are doing in. they traded they traded k-rod what <laughs> yeah well right wait not just but trading k-rod but just like in baseball um sort of meta if you will like if in video game terms or just like narrative in terms of what you know what people are discussing and i guess overall league-wide i I would i would say there's like two or three kind of storylines and i'm not sure if they all relate to what you know what the brewers are doing but you know at least let's set the table which is you know the royals won the world series and um you know people are sort of rushing to say hey let's see if we can build a team the Royals way and I not sure if that's so much a um, actual people thinking that or people thinking that people are thinking that you know uh, it's we haven't quite seen that but there have been some signs of saying like oh let's kind of build a team around the World Series winners which is a little uh, little astounding to me given that if you'd really want to model yourself after a successful team you might pick a team like the cardinals you know that won 100 right. games in the regular season and have just continued to win um you know over the decades with uh, with like middle of the road payroll although at the same time you can't really you know go build like the cardinals just because it's sort of more magical whereas with the royals you can say haha they're building this kind of team um so that's just I, yeah Go, oh, okay, go, go ahead and respond to that. I just wanted to kind of like throw that out there. No, yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to say because uh, I was even going to say uh, I want to build a team like the Mets. Really? Okay. Their offense was below average. They, they weren't a good offense 
offensive team until they found a couple of really good matchups. Uh, for instance, I mean, they did one really good thing, I believe, in hitting hard pitches very well. So I think they were just, they were the perfect mismatch for the New York Mets. Um, and otherwise, though, like for the whole season, their offense was below average. Mm-hmm. The Royals offense, you it's mean? It's kind of funny. Yeah, the Royals offense was and uh, whereas the Mets the Mets were more of this like classic baseball team where they had an exceptional offense and a great pitching staff with those like I think they had like four number one pitchers in 2015 which is just absurd um so I guess the uh, I, I think you're totally right to bring up the question of copycatism and what I would if we're having this meta discussion let's let's take it even deeper I would even say maybe you copy the Royals in building a ball club with completely undervalued traits that is like a one-of-a-kind team that no one else is going to be able to to, to match. Because, for instance, let's look at the Royals fielding. You're just not going to be able – another team isn't going to be able to copy the Royals fielding. You can't – there's not that many elite fielders that you can just be like uh, – have several MLB teams saying, oh, we're going to build an elite fielding club, you know? So I think in that sense we could say – what is the singular trait that the Brewers are going to build their their club after? Right. No. That, so that's a great great point, which actually leads me to my second sort of meta narrative thing, which is, it, you know, how it applies to the Brewers is there's been this thing that the, the, the Brewers fans have been talking about, which is, hey, look, a lot of these pitchers in the minors, which you know now in the majors, are ground ball pitchers. I don't know if that like really turned out to be true, but at least that's you know with Peralta and, and many other ones um, that's been the narrative. And listen, Miller Park is easy to hit home runs in. Let's get a bunch of ground ball pitchers. Let's get some really good infield defense, which you know Yadiel Rivera, hello, and mm-hmm. um, Gene Segura, who though I I don't necessarily agree that he has a great glove, but others do, and. Um, not quite Scooter Jeanette, but you know they had Sardinas, which they let go. But that's sort of the narrative of maybe let's let's go ahead and do that, and you know uh, the same way the Royals got some really good outfielders to cover their massive grounds. Um, you know you can get uh, really good infielders and then have ground ball pitchers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I know uh, disciples of Euchre listeners are going to have no question about the shift too. You know, we we're lovers of that shift. We say, get that. They had that great mm-hmm. staff in 2014 too. That was all, all the pitchers were designed fastball slider, fastball slider, fastball slider, get the ground ball into the shift. And, um, they did it in 2011. They used, I think they were the most improved, one of the most improved defenses, thanks to their shifts in 2011 and now now that you got an Astros guy in here maybe they'll uh maybe they'll be even more aggressive with shifts because I know for a fact there's some analytics guys in the front office that want to shift even more than the Brewers have been so uh I think it'll be really interesting to see um see what happens with with that sort of thing yeah so I I don't know if I told you this but and maybe I'm repeating myself but I I went to the um baseball shoot, what is it called? Analytics conference, whatever it was in, um, in Boston university, which oh, was that's in fantastic. August. Um, and you know, it's a mile and a half from my place. So I couldn't not go. And, uh, uh, I ended up going there and one of the talks was uh, baseball info solutions. And they talked about the shift 
And they actually revealed something super interesting. So they talked about these two kinds of shifts, right? For Let's just, for the sake of ease, just talk about left-handed power hitters. Mm-hmm. Um, so the shift against them, they saw two different kinds. One was a partial shift and one was a full shift. And the difference is where the shortstop is. Is the shortstop on the you know left side of the infield where he normally is, but just very close to the second base? Or is he all the way on the other side playing almost where the second baseman is? Sure. So... Um, you, you know, so a lot of teams they saw were doing this partial shift um, to sort of cover the hole that might be on the on the um, on the drive side of the left-handed hitters to kind of you know just hedge their bets a little bit, I would say. And what they found was that that was actually, um, if not the same, almost a little bit worse than not shifting at all. So the going all the way full shift where you just say, you know what, forget it. We're going to just completely cover your pull side. And if you can beat us on the drive side, go ahead and do it. Um, that that turned out to be much better at reducing batting average of uh, balls in play. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that seems to be something that is counterintuitively t- t- true in a way because I think what people don't realize is that yeah, I think the common sense fan looks at a shift. Um, I, I'm going to tell a story. I was once uh, at a ball game uh, watching Ken Griffey Jr. bat when he was with the Reds. And, and uh, my friend and I were sitting in the second level. And uh, these people behind us, uh, every single time Ken Griffey Jr. came up with the shift on, uh, they said, if I'm Ken Griffey Jr., I bunt every single time up the third base side. And I giggled at that. Because you just think Ken Griffey Jr. doesn't do that because Ken Griffey Jr. can hit a home run uh, almost at will. You know, he's one of the best power hitters that was in his era. And also he can drive the ball pretty well. And so people don't realize these batters don't go up there thinking, how can I change my approach to the shift? They're thinking, how can I succeed with my approach? Because hitting at the major league level is so difficult. You kind of got to do your do your thing and you can't really deviate from it. So doesn't actually surprise me uh what you said about the extreme shift because one of the i believe one of the outcomes of trying to pull the ball for power is that you end up with all these uh pulled ground balls right right um so yeah so okay so definitely we can i'm hoping that um the brewers employ more shifts and just i mean just this is just a hope that because they're not going to compete in 2016, maybe they try some other methods, you know, like uh, six-man rotations, four-man rotations, whatever the heck you want to try with bullpen management. And, I mean, this is just a wish. I don't think that's going to happen because there's always the other side of the argument, which is, well, you got a bunch of young players in there. You don't want to um, go ahead and just mess with the way that things are done and, and um, hurt their development in any way. But... You know, you kind of wish they'd, they'd try something. Right. And um, while we're talking about Stearns and the new um, the new GM, I, I feel like there's been a little bit of piling on to Doug Melvin and, and a lot of people suggesting that because the Brewers went to a quote-unquote analytical uh, general manager that they weren't analytical before. And I think that's 
that's kind of ridiculous. That's kind of insulting in a way. Because Melvin was a analytic GM. He just kind of held his cards close to the vest. So you never really knew what the Brewers actually were doing. They didn't come out and, you know, no one wrote a book about Doug Melvin's team. And you didn't really get these sort of press leaks about, you know, here's what the Brewers are doing in their radical front office. But they did things in the minors like, they had bonkers piggyback rotations where they would design ways for relievers to start the game and uh, starting pitchers to finish them and things like that. And so you you actually think if any team's going to do that in a rebuilding off year, it might be the Brewers. So in that regard, you wonder if Stearns will be as imaginative and as radical as Melvin was in some other ways. Well, t- talk about this piggybacking thing. I know they did some creative things, but I didn't know they they ever did, you know, where a reliever starts a game. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, Doug Melvin implemented a strategy um, in order to kind of get pitchers thinking about finishing the game. It was like a weird counterintuitive way to where they would put the starting pitcher in later and then the the pitcher would get the experience of like the feel of working late in the game and finishing the game and maybe like sort of wet their appetite for working deep in the game and being like, oh, this is what it feels like to finish the game as a starting pitcher. I'm going to have to look all that up, though, because that's all off the top of my head. I, this is like this is years ago. Um, I think that Melvin even actually leaked that they were doing something like this. Um, so I'm going to have to find the quote. But so Doug Melvin is kind of an interesting GM himself. And so I think people took the chance to kind of get some pot shots on him because, you know, Scooter Jeanette was good for a couple of years and Chris and all them. And, you know, so he was really high on those guys. And I think as soon as Scooter Jeanette had his hiccup this year, everyone's like, see, I told you, you know, Doug Melvin's wrong about baseball or something like that. And um, I think probably that's different to the front office, but I do think Doug Melvin was more of an analytic guy than people give him credit for. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, so, okay, let me, I kind of want to dive into the trades that we, we teased yes, at the top of the show. Um, and I want to just talk about, I don't want to talk about Luis Sardinas, so I'm not going to talk about him. But the the other two were way more, were more interesting, I think. And so let's, okay, let's open with Cy Snead for Jonathan Villar. So, I think Jonathan Villar is better than Gene Segura. Do you do you disagree? Oh, I don't disagree at all. I was I was doing cartwheels when I saw that trade. I couldn't believe it. And I and I have to be honest. I like Cy Snead a lot. I think Cy Snead is one of my favorite types of pitchers because he seems like this guy who like revels at proving everybody wrong. Um, and he re- I wrote about that on the website recently. Uh, you'll see this, that uh, I liken him to Tyler Wagner. So um, I don't want anyone to think that I don't like Cy Snead or that I'm you know ragging on him. But I was doing flips when. <laughs> I saw we got Jonathan Villar um, because he strikes me as one of these wrong place, wrong time people in Houston, you know, kind of like he was supposed to be like their best defensive shortstop in the system and great, uh, great infield arm and like a true defensive shortstop. And then all of a sudden the rebuilding prospects come on real quick and he's just, he's kind of in, in limbo. So um so now he's like the super utility player. And I think uh, he could be a really good surprise for, for some Brewers fans uh, in 2016. So does this make it more likely that Gene Segura is traded or 
uh, because Luis Sardinas went, then then Segura kind of stays. I honestly have no idea. Honestly, these house cleaning moves are kind of odd in the sense we kind of have the same kinds of depth that we did before, and then even had one in ten different directions. He could trade everybody. I mean, if the Francisco Rodriguez thing is foreshadowing, maybe he does true salary dumps and just unloads as many contracts as he can for minimal return. Uh, or maybe he keeps some of these guys and just has a super deep ball club. Because right now we got a pretty, like, I know it's a rebuilding year, but you, if you squint hard enough at how you could use Villar, Segura, um, and Jeanette, that's your third baseman, shortstop, and second baseman right there. Right. Um, I, that's that's not a bad team. That's, that's a team with some room to grow, but it's not a bad team. So it's just, it's really interesting to see what could happen. Yeah, I mean, for for my money, I think either Segura or Jeanette got traded for not very much, um, but they they could, do get traded um, as soon as Yadiel Rivera is ready, and I that I mean that might be you know towards the middle of next year, um, and that's I think that's going to happen. That's just my guess. Um, sure. And then and then you know after obviously once. Uh, uh, Orlando Arcia is ready, you know, move aside anybody else who's on his way because that's he's going to end up uh, manning shortstop hopefully for for a good decent amount of time. Um let me go to Kerod, the Kerod deal which we talked about as well. And it just seems to me that I don't know if you heard that uh, that effectively wild episode where they talked about this the deal, but you know, they were even um um even people who were you know, into uh, talk about the game all the time. We're sort of uh, surprised that Krod has been pretty valuable. Anyway, what I'm trying to say, it just didn't seem like the Krod deal that that the Brewers got enough back. Absolutely, uh, this is definitely a question that people are asking, and um, this actually came up in the comments section of of my article. And I have to be honest. Um, I'm kind of uncomfortable talking about this because it's it's pure speculation uh, that a couple industry people have thrown out that are close to front offices, um, and I obviously I I obviously am speaking as a complete outsider, so this it, it's kind of uncomfortable. But there were people that were basically suggesting that some of his off the field stuff from the past was impacting um, his mid season trade value in light of all the stuff that was going on in the National Football League, uh, where there's kind of this new attitude towards off-the-field um, stuff in in professional athletes. And for obvious reasons, I'm not really comfortable talking about that because it's, it's speculation. But I think someone like Keith Law or Buster Olney or one of those insiders threw that out um, at the at the trade deadline. If, if we think about K-Rod as more like a salary dump, where what do teams get in return when they get $10 million of contract taken off of their books, basically? And I, I think that's about what the Brewers got with K-Rod, was like something close to 8 to $10 million, uh, in salary relief. Um, you kind of get you get like an in prospect like that, like maybe a glove first guy that you can squint at a little bit and uh, maybe see, see like a glove first starter. Um, and uh, my best comparison would be the Bronson Arroyo and Tuki Toussaint deal that happened in the middle of uh, 2015. Um, are you? Do you remember that one? No, not really. Um, the Arizona Diamondbacks decided they wanted to get rid of Bronson Arroyo's salary, and I think it was close to like eight million dollars that he and, had owed. 
And, and this was after he got injured, right? Yes. Okay. So they basically gave up his contract um, to the Braves. The Braves said, we will pay 100% of the contract. And so the Arizona Diamondbacks actually tossed Tuki Toussaint in the deal, who's a pretty well-regarded pitching prospect. And uh, so the Braves said, we'll, we'll take Toussaint and you know, the, basically the $9 million in salary. And so the Braves gave up this infielder named Philip Gosselin. And he's basically uh, kind of like this bench guy who plays, um, he plays three different infield positions and the outfield. So he's kind of like a utility guy, um, 20, 27 years old in 2016. So um, in that comparison, I feel like it's actually a really good deal, um, given that the Brewers are going to get that infielder and there might be some players to be named later involved. Um, right. We do have to kind of wait around for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the player that Brewers did get in return was Javier Betancourt. Uh, he's 20 years old. Um, I, I mean, I guess the Tigers have a pretty good farm system, but it's he's still not, you know, he wasn't in the top 10 by any means or... So, so it's, well, I think it's actually the uh, there's a lot of people saying that the Tigers they didn't like the Tigers system, and so they were saying that like whatever Betancourt would be ranked is is not really not really impressive. But I got to be honest, like when you read about this Betancourt kid, he sounds like somebody he sounds like somebody who's not going to be a uh, uh, like like you don't worry about about the ranking with him. He, like a gamer like i hate i know people hate using that phrase but people are already saying he's a leader that he comports himself well he's like a character guy glove first guy and uh they call his batting approach advanced so he doesn't he doesn't strike out he doesn't walk he knocks the ball into play um and so i don't know what you say about a guy like that there's a lot of people already writing him off as like a deep a deep infielder or maybe a utility guy but i don't know i i feel like you can't sleep on a guy like that because um, even if he turns into like a Scooter Jeanette, well, Scooter Jeanette was really good for a couple of years and we don't know what's going to happen this year. He could still bounce back. So um, right. I, I just feel like it's really way too early to write off a 20 year old that he gets like universal rave reviews from everyone who's coaching him and uh people who are kind of around him in the game. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with his development. Yeah, and I, I just to wrap up your point about the Arroyo trade, what you're saying is not only did the Brewers get Betancourt, but also the freed up salary is could be either salary relief in a down couple of down years in terms of attendance, um, mm-hmm. but also it could be used you know, in the way that the Braves used it and the Brewers could take on a contract, which is kind of unheard of, of a, a team with the payroll size of the Brewers taking on contracts. But now they, they really don't. I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but really, I mean, if you look at like Braun and Garza, and those are about it, like in terms of heavy salary. So they, mm-hmm. they could afford to take on some um, some of the the far years of a bad contract and, and get a prospect um, on top of that in return. Um, and there's, I think that's a really good thing people need to think about is that um, you're getting a bunch of things in return. And I know it's really tough to quantify pay- payroll flexibility, but let's say too, now now that um, you got that money freed up, maybe 
David Stearns is going to build up, build up for a huge showing in the um, Venezuelan or Dominican or um, Korean baseball market mm-hmm. um, within the next two years. Maybe he's going to like just go go bananas like the Dodgers did one year or something, where they you know spend ten times their their allotted cap amount or whatever for international spending, where they just literally buy all the best prospects available uh, or as many as they can find. I think that type of move, now that the Brewers are getting their Dominican uh, Academy off and running, I think that's the type of thing you got to look at. That that $9 million could go a really long way if they use it that way and aggressively scout and and work with um, the agents down there. Right. Yeah, the, the, the other thing I wonder too is um, I wonder if Stearns would ever, you know, talk to Antonacio and say, okay, well, you know, we had agreed on a $100 million payroll for 2016, but guess what? I'm going to come under that. I'm going to make it an $80 million team, but that $20 million that I'm saving for you, I, I want that back and more in 2017 or 2018 when we're going to go for it. And I, I don't know if it works like that, but, you know, it, it could totally be something where Nasser could say, all right, you know, I'm going to save that money. I'm going to put it in a uh, stock market and uh, make a decent return and you can have that back. Yeah. You know, actually, as an aside, that's, I'm really glad you said that about the stock market because this is another thing I was thinking about uh, just recently. I was wondering why teams like the Brewers don't have like finance departments like, uh, like lots of other businesses do, like GM, like General Motors or something, something not even remotely connected to that would be related to, would have a, a finance department. So I'm thinking like, that is that the next market inefficiency that Mark Atanasio would actually take that money and like invest it? I mean, right. I, I I have to believe that what they'll do is they'll keep the budget very steady and they'll probably just, I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, they're just going to take on like, $30 million in profit. I would I want to know what kind of taxes you would have to pay on that. Right. Um, I think just, and again, while we're speculating, I think one of the reasons to answer your question would is, is that just the inflation in baseball itself is so much higher than the, the regular quote unquote market return that you might expect that you, you're better off spending that 20 million. Generally speaking, you're better off spending 20 million in 2016 than investing it and spending it in 2017 just because sure. of the amount of inflation um, in the market itself. So That's an exceptional, exceptional economic point. Well, <laughs> well done. Economics, that's <laughs> economics 101. People are going to stop listening for a while Holy here. Holy crap, that was a, yeah, wow, my mind is blown. Yeah, that's a really good <laughs> point. I didn't even think about that because if, if an average player's contract jumps from like, I don't know, 10 million to 12 million in a year, you've basically like missed every point of investing the money. Right, so yeah, right. that's a really good point. Fantastic, Vinny. Thank wow. you. So we've Sometimes clearly made the turn to, to hard economics in this, uh, <laughs> in this, um, <laughs> in this podcast. Well, but yeah, to, so to brag uh, a little bit more about that, that, uh, August, um, uh, sabermetric, um, conference, you know, I did, I did have a chance to speak with, uh, Dave Cameron of Fangraphs and, he, you know, obviously it comes from an uh, uh, economics background. I think that's what he studied. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the way he breaks down a lot of stuff as well. And, and we, were, we were chatting about some things like that. And, yeah, he, he really just thinks that, that he doesn't think that those are the only ways of, 
of analyzing uh, baseball, but it's a good baseline for any time you're talking about payrolls, anytime you're talking about contracts, is to just kind of start from what normal economic terms and just say, okay, if if the player really is different, let's talk about it. But in general, uh, you know, it's a it's a good starting point. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Um, that that he would have that idea. He's he's had some really interesting turns in his in his analysis too. He's uh, he's quite an interesting writer to follow. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I kind of want to talk about what the you know what the next moves are that the Brewers might do, and um, I know the big one is Jonathan Lucroy, but the the guy I really want to talk about is Adam Lind, and because um, to me he's super interesting because uh, one of the biggest free agents out there right now is uh, the uh, Orioles' Chris Davis, um, who's a, you know pretty good bet, but it's he's going to cost you a lot of money and. Um, and I think they offered him a qualifying offer as well. So um, if you sign Chris Davis, you're going to have to give up a draft pick. And I don't know. What's the list of who else is available after Chris Davis goes? There's there's not a lot available after after Chris Davis. You've got guys like uh, Mike Napoli and Mark Reynolds and Juan Francisco. So there are some, there are some other free agent offers. But uh, Adam Lynn is certainly not a bad a bad consolation prize uh and he's going to cost you a lot less than chris davis um both in monetary terms and what you have to give up to get him yeah and it, does he still have is he an arb eligible guy or is he he haven't had an extension um adam lind, adam lind? yeah he is on an eight million dollar contract this year so they just exercised his option and so he's going to cost eight million dollars for um for first base which is i mean that's that's exceptionally reasonable for his for his level of production right and especially if it's i mean i know we always talk about this but especially if he goes to an american league team where he came from in the first place you know he can dh although i don't think he dh'd too often with the blue jays but you know it's always an option um and yeah so i I think he's going to be pretty attractive and most likely david stearns is going to wait until chris davis gets moved and then sort of go into the second second or third highest bidder and say hey um we we got something for you here and i don't know if absolutely right i don't know if he's the kind of guy actually the to circle back on k-rod real quick i would have thought that maybe um maybe he would you would have had a better deal with uh um, waiting until uh, closer to the trade deadline and when people are kind of panicking about their bullpen. But that's not really the case with position players normally, and especially not like a first baseman. It seems like mm-hmm. most most uh, teams want a kind of a secure guy at first base before uh, before they head into April 1st. Right. I think that's definitely the case. Um, it's really interesting in general how uh, how much more difficult it is to judge a trade market for a position player than a um, than a uh, pitcher, um, both the deadline and before the seasons. So I think a lot of people, I think, were upset that they didn't deal Lind at the deadline, right? Um, last year, and uh, but it seems like they they might actually get a better return for him now. Although it's it's really hard to say. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we've talked enough. I know there's a there's a lot more we can talk about, and uh, we could have gone into some details. And the Rule Five draft is coming up, and forty man rosters. And I would 
encourage everybody if they really want to hear about that to um, go ahead and, and go on hop on the website. I know Nicholas has been writing a lot about that, and uh, you can you can find it all there. 